0: It's time for our kids to make their way downstairs for Children's Church, if there is one, and we encourage you to do that. So take your Bible. Thank you, Alex. Take your Bible, turn over to Genesis chapter 8, Genesis chapter 8, and I'm going to ask Rory Mederi, he's going to come and read scripture for us this morning, Genesis chapter 8, he's going to read verses 1 through 5. I always enjoy when Rory reads, right here. Here we go. All right. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain of the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of the 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Thank you, Rory. May God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. I want to talk, first of all, about the, one of the songs we just sang, that grace must be free. And that's what this... Sermons about the saving grace of God. As we think about the life of Noah, literally physically he was saved, but also spiritually he was saved as well. But we're talking about the physical aspect, but it applies to us on a spiritual level. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul said, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Picture salvation as a house that you move into, that's given to you by God. And he provides all the food, all the drink forever. You don't have to worry about going to the grocery store. You open the curtains and you see this beautiful, glorious view each and every morning. You get to enjoy that. And this house is given to you for absolutely free. It costs God an awful lot. It costs him and his son, his very life, to be able to purchase that home for you. That's what salvation's like. But the purchase agreement is called a new covenant. And the terms read like this. This house shall become and remain yours if you will receive it as a gift and take delight in the Father and the Son as they inhabit the house with you. You shall not profane the house of God by sheltering other gods, nor turn your heart away after other treasures, but find your contentment and the fellowship of God in this house. Now wouldn't it be foolish if after those agreements you hired a lawyer and you drew up a a maturation schedule, and you began to start making payments on this house to try to repay what was given to you, God would no longer be the gracious benefactor. You would be enslaved to making the payments for this house, and it would no longer be a gift. But grace is when we receive something freely and accept it, and then out of that we have a thankful, grateful heart, and we live in support And live to honor and exalt and lift up the one who gave it to us. And sometimes I think as Christians, if we're not careful, we think we're trying to repay the grace that God has given us. God has abundant grace that he continues to pour out upon us, and it's free. We cannot view it as something to be repaid. Salvation comes to us only through the grace of God. Salvation came to Noah and his family and the animals and the world Because of God's grace. It wasn't because Noah was obedient. Noah did everything that God said that he should do. It wasn't his works. But it was that God changed Noah's heart so that he could be righteous and obedient. God sees beyond our fault, sees our deepest needs, and then he comes and meets those needs with compassion, mercy, and grace by saving us. Don't ever stop thanking God for saving grace and the grace that's available to each and every one of us every day. Our purpose for this message is this, that every Christ follower can revel in the fact that God sees beyond our fault, sees our deepest need, and is willing to meet our deepest needs. That's what's so amazing about our God. He knows everything about us. He knows every detail. He knows our sin. He knows our limits. And yet, he shows grace in saving us. So look on your outline, and you'll see a little chart there that talks about the chronology of the flood. Just to kind of review there, what and how all this occurred. My, what I'm going to share is a little different than yours, but you've got a more detailed chart there. But some of the sequences of this event, as we've been studying in the Bible here in Genesis chapter 7 and 8, Seven days of waiting on the ark after God commanded Noah and his family and the animals to go into the ark. Forty days and night of rain. 150 days of rain. 150 days of the water and the flood uh, sitting on the earth and then finally receding. Forty days before the window of the ark opens up. Seven days of waiting on the ark before they disembark from the ark. As the waters of the flood rose, the Moody Bible Commentary says, as the water of the flood rose, peaked and subsided, so did God's judgment on humanity rise, peak, and subside. Isn't that interesting? That while God is judging, he's also pouring out his grace and taking care of Noah, taking care of the animals for the future world that he was going to rebuild. Some parallels about the flood and the after effects compared to other transitions in the Bible. We see that at the end of this time of Noah being in the ark, we see that uh, he moves out and they begin a new world. And of course, it harkens back to the Garden of Eden of Adam and Eve before they fell. A place of paradise, yet now they still have to deal with sin. It's a little bit different kind of Israelites going through the wilderness, going through the 40-year wilderness experience and then journeying into the promised land. The point of these transitions is to show that God is unchanging in how he deals and plans for the perfection of man versus man's inability to live up to God's ideal, to his plan of perfection, and shows us that man is in need of a sovereign God to redeem and continually intervene in our lives that God is here to protect us, to provide for us, and to lead us. So the narrative throughout the entirety of scriptures is that we are sinners in need of a Savior each and every day. Salvation begins at a point when we receive Christ as Savior, but salvation in the gospel continues to unfold and work in our life until our faith becomes sight. God's judgment lasts for a period, and then God shows his love, Mercy and care to the remnant of people who are faithful to him. First thing on your outline, you see that the rain comes to an end. The rain ends. The rain ends. Look at verse 1 as Rory read to us. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God remembered Noah. Think about that. His family, the animals that he placed on the ark. This is an anthropomorphism which means the giving of human characteristics, in this case, to God, who is a spirit. The word remembered is a big deal. It means that God shows us faithful love and his work on behalf of the one that he remembers. That means God is faithful to love us and to continue to work in our lives because he remembers us. Some examples from scripture, the Israelites When they were in distress, God remembered them. In Exodus 2.24, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Another example is Samson. Samson, he had his eyes gouged out, his hair cut, lost his strength. But he asked God for one more thing before the end of his life. And in Judges 16, he said, Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. We think of Hannah. Hannah, she wanted to have a child so badly. And she prayed and she prayed. In 1 Samuel 1.11 it says, And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. One of the most meaningful ideas of God remembering someone is the thief on the cross. In Luke 23, it says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This day, Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise. Just remember that God says he will never forget you, He will show his faithful love and work on your behalf, even when it feels like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. Even when you're being obedient and seeing nothing positive happening in your life. It tells us in Isaiah 49, and some of these words were just in the song we sang. It says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you because I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. What do you want God to remember you for? What do you want him to do on your behalf? How do you long for God's faithful love and working in your life? I long for COVID-19 to be cleared up and to kind of return to a, a better atmosphere I long for ethnic unrest to be settled and reconciled in our country. I long for this election cycle to be over. No more ads on TV, right? I long for God to bring revival to our country. That's what the return is all about. And I encourage you to think about coming and hearing the speakers and praying and seeking God for revival. Because that's the ultimate answer, no matter who gets elected into office. In Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, it gives us hope. In this life, as we are citizens of heaven, but we're also citizens here in the United States of America. We're dual citizens. Paul said this, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We have hope because we look for the eternal benefits of heaven. And we look to the eternal rewards that we will possess. And the people that we will take with us because we've shared Christ with them. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 8, the second part of that verse, it says, And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The word wind here is reminiscent of the creation story. Back in Genesis 1, in verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, and God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. That word wind here talks about the pushing back to allow for dry land. It's the same word that's used when talking about the Israelites. When they approached the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was coming after them, the winds came and separated the waters and allowed the Israelites to walk over on dry land. The word wind is significant. Look at verses 2 through 5 of Genesis 8. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Arad. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. The water covered the earth for 150 days. The rain ended after 40 days and 40 nights. Some commentators say that the, the ground where the, was broken up and the water was still coming up, still allowed that, and others say that it had stopped, but nevertheless, the water stayed even or the same for 150 days. As we'll see later, the flood ended in the 601st year of Noah's life. It started when he was 600 years old. So we read here that the ark's hall rested on the top of Mount Ararat. Today, this location is in eastern Turkey in a place called Armenia, the exact location of where the ark landed. Nobody knows for sure. But after the ark rested on Mount Ararat, it took two and a half months before Noah even could begin to see the mountain peaks around him. I want to drive home this fact that Liberal scholars have challenged this idea that this was not a universal worldwide flood, but a regional flood. And here's some reasons that it could not have been just a regional flood. The population had spread to other parts of the known world, and so it had to cover the expanse of the earth, as we'll see here. First of all, the depth of the flood. In Genesis 7.19, it talked about how uh, the ark was 23 feet above the tallest peak that's an awful lot of water. The duration of flood was 377 days. The geology of the flood, talking about how the ground burst, the subterranean ground opened up and the waters were poured out. The size of the ark, 95,700 square feet of deck space to prepare for this long journey. And here's the one I think is the kicker of it all. If it was a regional local flood, why didn't God just have no the animals go off to where the flood wasn't going to be? He had them build an ark. There was the need of the ark. God could have directed them somewhere else where the flood wouldn't have affected the land. We see the testimony of the apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3. The purpose of the flood was to destroy everything in the entire world, the animals, the people. And the promise of God in Genesis 8, 21, which we'll see in a little bit, that he said he would not destroy the whole earth again with water. But 2 Peter 3, we know the next time he will uh, clear the world by fire and build a new heaven and a new earth. So God, when he says all, all means all. So the application here is that God remembers you daily as he did Noah. And that's a great promise. That whether you're at school, whether you're sitting in the lunchroom or math class, whether you're at your job, whatever it is, and you're having a tough time, just remember, he's got your image graven on his palms. He has not forgotten you. He is showing faithful love and working on your behalf, just like he did on behalf of Noah. The second thing we see here today is the receding of the water. The receding of the water The rain came to an end, but it sat there for about 150 days. And we pick up in verse 6 of chapter 8. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to Noah to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So no one knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more." The dove found the dry land, and Noah knew at that point that it was time to prepare to disembark from the ark. But notice the progression here. It's pretty self-explanatory. Noah sends out the raven. We don't know what happens to the raven. It doesn't uh, say whether it returned or not, but we know the dove went out three different times, once, twice, and the third time. The second time it came back, it brought an olive leaf, showing that there must have been the water receding to the point where they could pick up some kind of a leaf from an olive tree. And then the dove finally did not return. Now Noah is waiting on God for permission to leave. He doesn't run and open the door right away. He is waiting. Notice he had to wait seven days. Now he's waiting again for instructions to leave the ark. How are we doing waiting on the Lord ourselves? Do we think about our prayers for a wayward child? Are we continuing to persist and pray for the prodigals in our life to return to him? Or do we give up? Are we waiting on the Lord for the healing of a child's marriage? For a job to provide finances? You fill in the blank. What is it that you're waiting on the Lord to do? That you're praying, that you're seeking? We see a great example of no waiting for God's timing. We need to be careful that we don't do what Abraham and Sarah decided to do when they knew Isaac was the promised one. They didn't didn't have that name yet, but they knew that their son was going to be the promised one of Israel. But what did Abraham and Sarah do? They ran ahead of God's plan. They took matters into their own hands because Sarah thought she couldn't have a child. So she directed Abraham to be with Hagar, and of course Ishmael was born and there' the and Ishmael's the father of the Arab nations, and ever since that time, the Arabs and the Jews have been in tension with one another, all because Abraham and Sarah ran ahead of God 's will. as I was reading in my devotions today how Saul was out in battle, and Samuel told him to wait at a certain spot until he came, and Samuel the prophet would offer the sacrifice, and saw Saul that the people were going home and his military men were leaving and so Saul, Samuel wasn't there, so what did he do? He took on the priestly responsibility. Disobediently, he provided the sacrifice, and Samuel rebuked him and told him that he would not have this kingdom or his children forever, that God was already preparing someone else, David the shepherd boy, because of his disobedience. What today are you waiting on? A song that Austin leads us in, it's pretty popular right now. It's called Waymaker. And it has a line in there in the bridge. God never stops working even when you can't see he's working. You know, when we look back in time to our circumstances, and we think we've waited a long time, but when we look back, we see that it all worked out in God's perfect time and in God's perfect way because we're not, he's not on our schedule. We're on his schedule. And so we need to get to the place where we can surrender and be willing to wait on him. Psalm 37, 34 says, Wait for the Lord and keep his way. And he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. Isaiah 40:31 is a verse probably familiar to many of you. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. There's a writer, he wrote this story about his Aunt Gladys. And when his family would go visit his wife's Aunt Gladys, they would see that she has this little apple orchard out there. And one fall they went and they couldn't believe the abundance of apples. They'd never seen it so full before. The branches were hanging low to the ground. There were so many apples on the tree. And they began to ask Aunt Gladys what caused it. And she said, well, last year there was a late frost and it froze the buds. And so what does a tree do? It creates these things called scions, S-C-I-O-N-S. They're little nodules that collect the energy that's given through the wintertime, and it builds up this energy. And then when the spring comes, this energy is released, and it bursts out in a tremendous way and creates a huge, huge abundance of apples and harvest. Gladys' description, according to this writer, made him think about our spiritual lives, Sometimes the harsh frosts of this life, cancer, divorce, loss of job, bankruptcy, trauma, grief, depression, cause our hearts to freeze. But at the core of the Christian faith, we also live with an incredible promise in and through Christ. There'll be abundant harvest in our lives. God's power is pulsating under the gnarly bark of this world and even our bodies. In Christ, we're being formed in a small nodule of living hope. During certain seasons of our life, we feel our hearts waiting, longing, and even aching for those frozen places to burst into life. Our living hope is that one day all this stored up glory will be unleashed in a joyful riot of splendor. I like the way he put that. So good things come to those who wait patiently, and we obediently do what we have right in front of us to do. It may seem mundane, you know, we've got to do our laundry, got to wash our dishes, got to make sure the kids are fed and and schooled and all these things. But God is working to do amazing things underneath the gnarly bark of our lives. Are we willing to wait for God's best or settle for taking it on ourselves and settling for something less than what God wanted or something even worse with consequences that will affect us the rest of our life? We have to continue to ask that question when faced with uncertainty. So our application is this, that God remembers our patient obedience as we wait for his leading. If God's not moving as fast or in the direction that you think he should be doing now, we need to continue to wait, continue to obey what he wants us to do, and then he will lead us. God prepares to give his creation a second chance a do-over of sorts, and that brings us to our third point, the restart of God's creation. The restart of God's creation. Look at verses 13 through 19 of Genesis 8. In the 601st year, it's interesting how he marks out the history of this ark and in the perspective of Noah's life. So in the 601st year of Noah's life, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold the face of the ground was dry. In the second month on the 27th day of the month the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah go out into the ark go out from the ark you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. And every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. In Genesis 7, verses 1 through 9, Noah obediently entered the ark and waited for rain for seven days. 300 days while he sat on the ark, while the water was at some level covering the earth. Another 57 days waiting on the Lord and testing for dry land before God said it was time to go. 377 days. Count them from Genesis chapter 7, verse 1 to chapter 8, verse 14. Now, Noah again obeys God's command to come out of the ark onto dry land and rebuild and multiply the earth. He was going to provide offspring, he was going to provide descendants to rebuild the earth. Different from Adam and Eve in the garden, these folks had a sinful nature, but they were going to remultiply the earth. Everything was going to be new. The animals, the same way, the animal kingdom was going to be redeveloped as they procreated. And he was beginning to explore the land with its new topography and new geography. And at the end of this chapter, verse 22, it says that the seasons were established, fall, spring, winter, summer. You and I, we can start each and every day with a fresh new start. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again in John 3.3. 3. It's not enough to be born once, you have to be born twice. Born of the Spirit. Receive the gospel of Christ. Accept Christ as your Savior. And the gospel is the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. And when you do that, you have a new start in life. Not only in this life, but you have the hope of eternity in heaven. I think of other new starts. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that we are in Christ, our new creatures. Old things are passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. He promises us a new heart when we receive Christ. In Exodus 36, it says that I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God starts and changes us and makes us new. And it's something, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, that we are doing each and every day, putting away the old, adding the new to our life. Isaiah 43 says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God is always in the business of recreating things, making new things. In the midst of this uncertain time with COVID-19 and all that's going on, what is God prompting you to do that's new and different? Last semester, one of my students at spring break after we had to, uh, at Scott Community College, go to Zoom classes, she took up quilting. And by the end of the semester, she had half a quilt done. What are some new things that you've done? My wife and I, we've done some Zoom dinners with several people in the church that were unable to, to come at that point and to see their families. We have some new Bible studies, as Ann shared about, and we're going to talk about another one called Disciples, Making Disciples, the Timothy Initiative. It's going to be starting up really soon as well. What are some new things that God is doing in your life? Well, the application here is that God restores our lives with new beginnings. You might feel like you're in a rut. You might feel like you need to start some new habits. This is the time to do it. God will give you the power and the ability to do it. Psychologists say it takes about 21 days or a little more to develop a new habit in your life. And while you're developing a new habit, you're letting go of some old habit at the same time to replace it. What is God stirring in your heart to do that's new and different? Our last point today is the response of worship with thanksgiving. To the Lord. The response of worship with thanksgiving to the Lord. Look at verses twenty through twenty-two as we finish this chapter. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of A man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So as we go through these seasons in a year, just be mindful that it all started back when Noah came off the ark, and God rearranged the topography, the geography, and established the seasons of, of, of our lives, the cycles of a year. Noah comes out, and notice what's the first thing he does. He builds an altar. He takes some of those clean animals. Remember, he took seven of the clean animals, but two of each of the unclean animals. Some of those clean animals were used in this sacrifice to thank God for saving him, Providing for him on the ark and taking care of his family and the animals. It's truly a response to God's grace working in their lives. Notice verse 21. It says there was a sweet aroma, a pleasing aroma. That means in the Hebrew that a smell of satisfaction in God's nostrils. That the offering, the sacrifice was pleasing to the Lord. The flood attained its purpose and now it was time to start over. Noah continues to receive the grace from God. As one commentator said, he walked with God in obedience and righteousness. He was preserved from judgment. Noah entered a new age with people's wickedness temporarily removed. And what does he do? He responds with worship and sacrifice. How are you responding to the grace of God in your life? Are you worshiping God today but also throughout the week It's great that we can gather together, and I'm excited that more of our people are coming back, and we can sing in corporate worship and pray for the offerings. That's part of worship and open God's word and all these things we do here. But what about through the week? Are you worshiping God at your job? Do you sense that God has put you there for a purpose and a plan, and through your work performance, you are worshiping him? What about with your family? What about as you exercise or walk outside or do yard work? Do Maybe you sing through the week or read God's word or pray or meditate on it. We all worship in many and different and diverse ways. And we just encourage you to be about worshiping because look at what Noah did. He worshiped the Lord. A couple things to think about so that our worship is a pleasing aroma in God's sight. Hebrews 13, 15 says that he loves, God loves to hear praise from our lips. That's what's so powerful about Austin leading us in music, is the praise goes up to him. It's a sweet sacrifice that he receives. In Proverbs 3, it says that we are to give the best possessions in worship. Proverbs 3:9, We're to give of our very best. And so, Worship is active. It's something that we are involved with, with our whole being, with our emotions, with our giving of our finances, with our body to serve in worship. We're to worship with humility and a willingness to hear from God in our spirits as we gather for worship. How is your worship doing? Is it something you do on Sunday to check off and say you've done it? Or is it a time you look forward to and prepare your heart before you even step on the property here And ask God to prepare you to give of your all as you worship today. Notice what it says there in 8.21 that God knew that man had not changed. Men and women by nature were still sinners. God knows the intents of our hearts. He looked beyond what they said or did and looked at their attitudes and motives. And he does the same with us. Despite the depravity of man, God says he will never destroy the earth by floodwaters again, verse 21. He shows man mercy. Mercy is getting less punishment than we deserve. Ezra, the priest, said this in Ezra nine thirteen. and after all that has come upon us, talking about being away on captivity, being allowed to return, after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities, deserved, and have given us such a remnant as this. Do you have a sense of grace today that God doesn't punish you as much as you deserve? He's loving, he's caring, he's compassionate, he knows we're made of dust. He knows that we're weak, and he cares for us and provides that grace. God sets up now the changing of the seasons until earth is destroyed by fire, according to Second Peter 3, and remade after Jesus returns. Our closing application is this, that God rejoices with us as we worship him. You know, this isn't rehearsal here on earth for when we get to heaven. We are singing here on earth and worshiping now just as the angels are around the throne. We're joining in. It's just a different location. And we need to remember that God rejoices with us as we worship him. Are you sensing God's grace and how he works in the different seasons of the year and the different seasons in your life as well? Our key thought is this, and remember this always, and this is really the summation of what the story of Noah's Ark is all about, is that God is in the business of saving people and loving his creation despite their depravity. God wants to see beyond the fault, see not only the need, but he provides the way to meet the need. No other God is like our God. No other God has that same love and that compassion to look to man's heart. And Andre Crouch, gospel singer from yesteryear, wrote that song, God looked beyond my fault and saw my need. And I hope that you're thankful for that today. As we close, I want you to think about these three questions. And I want you to think about them very deeply today. Do you have a deep, deep sense that God is with you? And no matter what happens in life, it's going to be okay. Last week, when uh, Carrie Zanke was here, she led us in that song, It Is Well With My Soul. Is it well with your soul, no matter what is going on in your life? Second of all, do you know that being obedient to God is worth it? No matter the consequences that arise due to your decision to obey God. We have to be getting ready for persecution. We have to get the next generation ready for persecution. If you look at the news, you know the news is tightening as uh, they're making circle in the wagons. And Christians are going to be the ones that are going to be in the crosshairs. Are we going to be obedient if it costs us our job, maybe finances, maybe our social status? And lastly, do you sense how good it is to worship God with your whole heart and how it brings so much joy to yourself? As you worship God, it's reciprocal. You're giving him praise and he pours joy into your soul through your obedient worship. Let's bow for prayer. Father, I'm so thankful for the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this picture of Noah and the ark early on in the scripture to give us a glimpse of what redemption looks like, what grace looks like, that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us on the cross so that we could have a relationship with you, have our sins completely forgiven. And as Romans says, on this grace we shall stand. May we today revel in this grace and know that it's constantly available to us, It's an overflowing cup, a fountain that's supposed to flow out from the throne of God and out of our lives into other people's lives. And may we be a conduit as we thank you, as we worship you, be a conduit of grace to show that grace to others. There's no other God like you, Lord, that gives us this free offer. And may we be excited about it in our own lives enough to share it with those that are so desperately in need around us for hope In the midst of these dark times, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.